I've studied the form of comics intimately. What you need is a hobby. Words and pictures, it could be more of an art form. What the fuck are you talking about? I don't know, it's pretty goddamn weird. A guy dresses up like a devil, a blind lawyer, you know? We have to do Aquaman. No one with a lick of sense would watch that show. The word fan actually is a, an abbreviated form of fanatic. And there are some people who fit that category. I believe comics are our last link to an ancient way of passing on history. You can put on a uniform for football, year-round, nobody cares. Basketball, year-round, nobody cares. Put on a Star Trek uniform, people get a case of the giggles. Yeah, hi, somebody told me they make comic books here. That's from Superman? Smallville. You have been trying that Jedi mind shit on me since the eighth grade. It doesn't work. Oh, it works. You guys must read too many comic books or something. People do not masturbate in the DC universe. That was the biggest load of crap I've ever heard. to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and right now I'm working my way through a mini-series that's all about Batman Year One. Now, I mean that in a kind of universal sense, because I'm not doing a mini-series all about the storyline called Batman Year One. Instead, this mini-series is all about Batman stories that take place during Year One, you see. So... Hopefully that all makes sense. Now, the reason that I've been going through specifically year one era types of stories is because of the fact that I've just been going through a little bit of a, of a Batman kick lately with uh, my comic book reading. And guys, I gotta tell you, that, that pretty much determines uh, what I talk about, you know? There are some podcasters out there, and I am neither criticizing them nor praising them. I'm just saying this is the way that they do their, they handle their business. But there are a lot of podcasters out there who will podcast about designated subject matter, you know? And in my case, well, actually, before I get into my case, what I've heard some of them say is that, you know, it would be nice to be able to just read comics for pleasure. And then that's it. Now, in my case, what kind of sets me apart is the fact that I just podcast about the comics that I'm already reading for pleasure. And so that's where a lot of all of this um, variety in my show comes from. I mean, I basically podcast about whatever I happen to be interested in at any given moment. And that's pretty much the way that it works. So... I would like to believe that results in a better final product, but who can say? In any case, that is the way that I do things. And so that's the reason that I've sort of zeroed in specifically on Batman year one era types of stories. Makes sense? Now, you might ask, why is it since year one stories are so plentiful, 
You know, you talk about a target-rich environment. Why am I restricting my conversation, apart from the year one story itself, why is so much of my concentration going to be on pretty much the mid-90s, you know? Why is it that I'm not broadening and expanding my reach, as it were? And honestly, guys, the reason for that is because I regard the early to mid-90s, and to some degree or another, maybe the late 90s as well, as being sort of, that's really my era of Batman. I realize this this type of Batman isn't for everybody. There are some people out there, well, some people like it and some people don't, maybe is the most politic way to put it. But this is not necessarily the universally beloved Batman, you know? Uh, I'm not aware of anybody who just out-and-out out dislikes um, the the Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams Batman. I mean, that one, it seems like it's it's pretty well universally regarded, you know? And not even just specifically the Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams Batman, but Batman really in that general era, you know? People seem to really dig that Batman. And the same, I don't know, I don't know if it's necessarily as true of the late 80s to late 90s Batman, where, well, as I say, I mean, you know, some people are more enthusiastic about Batman in this era than others. So, but this is certainly my Batman, and that's the point that counts. So, there you go. Now, in 1995, DC, back when they had sort of themed annuals, what they would do, in case you don't know, is that they would have these kind of themed animal, uh, annuals, right? Where their annuals relate to a particular storyline that's going on, like this wider company crossover that's happening. Or there's a theme to these annuals where they all have more or less the same concept, but they go with it kind of in their own direction, you know? And that was a pretty common thing to see through, I would say, the majority of the 90s, right? Some of these ideas and concepts were better than others, but hands down, my personal favorite is the 1995 concept, which was basically year one, you know? All of these characters had sort of year one types of stories, and so the interest, at least for me, was basically defining what all of this meant post-Crisis on Infinite Earths, right? Post-Zero Hour. What does year one in the DC universe look like for all of these different characters? And by and large, I think the, I think the year one annuals, at least those that I've read, have mostly done a, they mostly did a, a pretty good job of fitting in, you know? Uh, not necessarily, well, not fitting in, but I, I suppose full, satisfying their mandate, you know, doing year one types of stories and stuff. I just really enjoy these, these 1995 year one, you know, annual tie-ins and whatnot. It, to me, this was just a ton of fun, you know? So your actual mileage may vary though. In any case, today's, uh, today's story Basically, this... Well, fuck, I'm not even going to try teasing it. Uh, basically, what I'm going to be talking about, this is Batman, Shadow of the Bat, annual number three. And 
The on-sale date, at least according to Mike's Amazing World of DC, is August the 15th, 1995. Cover price is $3.95. Remember when it was only the super special annuals that cost that much money, guys? Ah, uh, the good old days. Anyway, writer is Alan Grant. Cover artist is Brian Stelfreeze. Penciler is Brian Apthorpe. Inker is Stan Walk. Colorist is Linda Medley. Letterer is Ken Lopez. Editors are Jordan B. Gorfinkel and Dennis O'Neill. <clears throat> Title of this story is... Poison Ivy. Story synopsis is as follows. Batman interrogates a crook by hanging him off a flagpole. The crook eventually rolls over on his boss. However, Batman can't get to the big boss until tomorrow, so he's just about ready to call it a night when he happens across a dying man. Mushrooms and shit are sprouting out of his skin, after which the man keels over dead. Batman has no idea just what the fuck happened to him until he looks up and sees the perp and, and some henchmen on the skyway above him. He ziplines up there as her henchman, one of whom identifies her as Poison Ivy, reminds her that now would probably be a pretty great time to get the hell out of Dodge. Ivy realizes that she needs a distraction, so she poisons a man sitting nearby by kissing him full on the mouth. In front of the guy's wife, too. Ivy's such a bitch. Anyway, so the man dives off the skyway, right? But Batman zips back the way he just came to catch the idiot. By then, Ivy's made her getaway. The next evening, Bruce Wayne attends Councilman Danzig's charity dinner with Bebe Daniel. Or, sorry, Bebe Danielle a semi-literate, semi-fluent, semi-conscious Hollywood actress. Bruce resents even having to go to retarded bullshit like this, especially since he thinks he's got the hots for Poison Ivy. But stupid events like this are part and parcel of keeping Bruce Wayne wealthy. Without Bruce Wayne, there would be no Batman. And perhaps without Batman, there would be no Bruce Wayne. Anyway. After drinking some poisoned wine, just about everybody at the party sprouts mushrooms from their bodies just like that other dude did earlier. Poison Ivy chooses that moment to crash the party and rob everybody blind in exchange for giving them the antidote to the poison. They've still been poisoned, even though this is a very watered-down version of the poison as compared to what killed that guy earlier in the story, you see. Luckily, Bruce substituted plain water for his wine, so he's unaffected but gets cornered by Poison Ivy's goons. He tries to put up a fight, but gets smashed upside the head by the stock of a gun and dragged back to the party. Bebe Danielle gets shot, even though Bruce tries protecting her. To reward, quote-unquote, Bruce's bravery, Ivy gives him a poison kiss that she promises is going to kill him within the next hour. Then, she and her minions escape. Bruce switches to Batman and tries tracking Ivy on the device he planted on her when she was tongue-wrestling with him. He manages to track her to the abandoned plant factory in the abandoned plant factory district and takes out her guards even though the poison is slowly killing him and it's all he can do to stay conscious. Inside the abandoned plant factory in the abandoned plant factory district, Ivy manages to get the drop on him with some poisoned cactus looking thing and then she gives Batman the same poisoned kiss she gave to Bruce. She says the only antidote to that is the second kiss from her which... She has no intention of giving to either Bruce or Batman. 
Batman laughs his balls off, breaks free of the poisoned cactus-looking thing, takes Ivy's ass into custody, and before you can say, get off my lawn, you fucking tree-hugging hippie, she's been locked up inside Arkham Asylum. There, she daydreams about Batman because of his strange ability to shake off the pheromone-based attraction that everybody's supposed to have to her. The end. So, what did I think? Well, this this story doesn't really get as in-depth with Poison Ivy's origin as as Batman Annual number 19 went in-depth with Jonathan Crane's origin. I mean, Batman Annual number 19 went into laborious depth regarding how Jonathan Crane came to be what he is. And just from the outset, we don't get as much of that here. Now, that either works for you or it doesn't. And if it doesn't, there's really nothing I can... I can say or do that will change your mind on that. So put a pencil to it, I suppose. But anyway, to get into the story proper, basically right uh, right here on the cover of the book, well, this doesn't exactly bury the lead, you know, with anything. Brian Stelfreeze basically lays out I would say in pretty literal terms how this story ends, with Batman sort of trapped by that poisoned cactus-looking thing, while Poison Ivy kind of poses for the camera just a little bit, you know? And so there's really not a whole lot of subtlety to this cover. What there is, though, is, at least in my opinion, just... This is what you might call... Brian Stelfreeze at his usual level of brilliance. I am a huge fan of Brian Stelfreeze's covers for Shadow of the Bat, and this is a really good one. This is not the best that he ever did by any means, but it's really fucking good. Really good. So, it's all... It's... I would say, though, that as... that Batman Annual Number 19... It basically gives you the flavor and the tone of the story, but it doesn't really give away much of the story. Does that make sense? If you just look at the cover of Batman Annual Number 19, you wouldn't necessarily know how that story begins, what the middle of it is, and then the way that it ends. You know, you you wouldn't know that just looking at the cover, you know? You do get a look at... at I guess the, not so much the tone and the style of the story, but more the story itself, or at least part of the story. So, as I say, that works for you or it doesn't. So, to get into the actual story, though, on page one, basically what we see is Batman standing atop a roof, roof, and just to look at it, you'd almost think this is a, a little bit of a glory shot of Batman a sort of iconic moment where he's standing atop a roof and the cape is flapping his, or rather the wind is flapping his cape around and all of that kind of fun stuff. And it's only whenever you actually start reading the dialogue and then you look further down the page, you realize, holy shit, this guy is roped to a flagpole, you know? And 
the perp says, you can't do this. You can't leave me here. What if the pole snaps? And Batman says, don't worry. The ground will break your fall. And basically what we're seeing here is this is a Batman who may be a rookie. He may be inexperienced. He may not necessarily have the perfect answer to everything. But he is nevertheless getting better at certain aspect of his job, not least of which is interrogations. There are plenty of instances where Batman kind of has to, well, let's just say it. He kind of needs to scare the shit out of people a little bit. And that is exactly what's going on here. The reader can safely assume that Batman isn't going to just let this guy die. But he's got to have a solid enough bluff that this guy doesn't realize that Batman is, in fact, bluffing, you know? So, works pretty well. From there, we... And this is on page three. We get... We get, basically, I would say four panels, or three, depending on how you look at it, but really four panels of these sort of money shots of Batman swinging through Gotham City. And his internal monologue... I think kind of says a lot about where Alan Grant thinks Batman's head is right now. Actually, this is actually not even internal monologue. This is more, I guess, caption boxes. But anyway, it says he's given up a lot to follow this course, this way of the bat, but it feels like no sacrifice. Energy blocked in one direction is equally viable, released in another. He'll take down the Undertaker's smack scam when the goods are delivered tomorrow. And it just sort of goes goes on from there. But I guess the value of this is it it emphasizes that, yeah, again, this is, in a relative sense, a rookie Batman. But this is a Batman who's fundamentally more experienced and better at his job than the guy that we saw in Batman Year One. He's better at this. And I don't know why, but what... This, you know, Year One is not really my favorite era of of Batman, but there's something about... I guess a, a somewhat rookie, but slightly experienced Batman that just kind of works for me. You know, it works for me that he doesn't necessarily have all of the answers, you know? He doesn't necessarily have the same procedures or the same equipment or what have you that he's going to rely on later in his career just to do a lot of core essentials of his job. This is a Batman who's a little bit more stripped down to his bare essence. And as much as I enjoy Batman having access to infrastructure like pretty much the entire Gotham City Police Department, having allies like uh, Tim Drake, Dick Grayson, Oracle, and whatnot, and all of that kind of stuff. There's a lot to be said about a Batman who's, I guess, got overall fewer toys to work with, you know, in order to guarantee victory. And so he has to rely a little bit more on his wits in order to win. And that works for me, you know? So... 
Anyway, we start getting into the, the meat of the story, starting on page four. Batman <clears throat> descends to the pavement. He sees, he sees just this random dude running around. And the guy is sprouting mushrooms from his skin, from his nose, from his mouth. And this is one of those times when I think the, unca- the, the uncanny valley is element maybe figures into this a bit, where when you see something this fucked up, <clears throat> you know, a an illustration of somebody with mushrooms and shit and weeds and whatnot growing out of them is just weird enough and creepy enough to kind of start reaching into the uncanny valley aspect of your mind, you know, your your consciousness. And it just goes that extra little degree of weirdness where... This is just creepy. This is just fucking... This is a terrible way to die. You know, nobody deserves to die this way. Because, you know, what you kind of have to figure is that if your nose has mushrooms and whatnot coming out of it, and so do so, so does your mouth, your most likely cause of death is suffocation because I think it stands to reason that your breathing passages have been blocked off. And who's to say what's actually growing internally, like inside your body? You know, do your lungs have mushrooms and stuff growing inside of them as well? And this is just a terrible fucking way for somebody to die. You know, this is this is awful. So there's that extra just creep factor to it. Getting into page five, we start getting a little bit of, I guess, Poison Ivy's reference point here where... She's attracted to Batman, and I don't mean that just in the sense of, you know, she thinks he's kind of good-looking. I mean, everything about Batman, at least to start with, seems almost tailor-made to attract Poison Ivy. She says, so dark and mysterious, so athletic and muscular and lithe and graceful, and, no doubt, handsome under the mask. The perfect man she says. And this is a a depiction of Poison Ivy. And I think this was kind of the trajectory of Poison Ivy at this time, where you have Poison Ivy sort of as a little bit of a, of a misanthrope. You know, she hates men. So it may be tempted to say that she's one of those wackadoo man-hating women. Except she seems to hate women just about as much as she hates men. So it's not just a matter of, you know, she hates men or, or you know, one gender or the other. She, she hates people. And so for her to have any kind of value, I suppose, for her to put any kind of value on Batman, even if it's just that he, he may be good looking, that's a big that's kind of a big step for Ivy. So, anyway, she makes her she makes her escape and this is admittedly this is kind of a funny moment because of the fact that Poison Ivy emits pheromones that will attract all men to her. She wanders over cuz she's basically at a restaurant, guys. So she wanders over to one of the tables, you know, where a married couple is having dinner and uh 
she gets the guy's attention. She says, hey, come here. Kisses him full on the mouth. And this guy's wife is 10 different kinds of pissed off. And Poison Ivy even says, don't fret, dear. Men just aren't worth it. Though neither are women, of course. After that, Lester, this guy's name is, Lester decides, hey, motherfucker, I can fly. Watch, everybody. And so he leaps off of the skyway. Batman ziplines after him. And this is just a really, a really cool moment, you know, because the, I guess the caption, because this isn't really an internal monologue, the caption says, a line snakes out. He has spent many long hours honing his skills. For in this grim crusade, he has vowed to wage against crime. Not only does his own life depend on it. And that, actually, this kind of leads into a little bit of a trouble with the lettering. It's almost like there's a, there's almost, it's almost like there's a caption missing because the next caption takes up kind of a different train of thought. To fail only once is to fail forever. But whether or not there's an there there's some kind of a technical problem going on with the lettering on this page this is just a really cool moment right here on page 7 where the guy jumps off the building batman throws the bat rope uh onto something swings out after after lester barely manages to catch him and then basically ends up right back where he started on the surface looking up at the skyway and that's just a really fun moment, you know? Anyway, so after that, there's this sort of establishing shot of Wayne Manor as Batman rolls up on a, not even a bat cycle, this is just a motorcycle, and thinks out loud that, you know, I have got to get a car for nights. And so, again, this just sort of speaks to the fact that Batman doesn't have all of the toys and whatnot that he will have later in his career. And that's actually pretty well exemplified by the fact that the Batcave has a punching bag and what looks like just a consumer-grade desktop computer with a desk and an office chair set up. But this isn't, you know, like the supercomputer that we're all used to seeing. It's basically a just a little workstation. I mean, it, it really is just a step away from being a cubicle in an office that you've seen a thousand times in a thousand different offices, I suppose. So that is pretty much that. So this is a Batman who's very much building out his arsenal, building out his, his repertoire, building out his accessories. You know, he doesn't necessarily have all the same stuff that he will have, you know, later in life. And so he and Alfred sort of comment upon that and then make their way upstairs where on page nine, it comes out that, you know what? The pheromone compound, or I guess the pheromones that Poison Ivy just sort of exudes from her body, Batman is not immune to that stuff because Poison Ivy is basically all he can talk about, you know? So he's in the shower and he's, he even says, you know how some women are beautiful, but they just don't turn you on. Well, Poison Ivy is both, or rather, Poison Ivy is both beautiful and sexy. And the conversation goes from, and you know, like the thing is, God, that is so true. You know, there are some women out there who are just so elegant and beautiful on the one hand, 
but I don't know. It's they just don't do it for you, if you know what I mean. And at the same time, just to kind of flip that the other way, there are some women out there who do it for you, but you really wouldn't classify them as elegant or beautiful in that sort of mainstream, almost universally accepted sense. Does that make sense? I mean, I came of age in the 90s when probably the sex icon, you know, for that general time was Sharon Stone in Basic Instinct. Now, Sharon Stone was sexy as hell back in her day, but I don't think anybody thinks of her as beautiful. She was sexy, not really beautiful. And since I'm talking about the 90s, both with this comic and in, the, and in this example, Cindy Crawford was beautiful. But was she really sexy? I don't know. I mean, I, I like every time I ever saw a picture of Cindy Crawford, I remember thinking elegant, beautiful, or just whatever. But I don't remember thinking I would love to do stuff with this with, with this chick, if you know what I mean. I don't remember ever thinking that, you know, not about Cindy Crawford, you know. And like I say, I'm not saying she wasn't good looking. I'm saying she was gorgeous. She was beautiful, but she really wasn't sexy. While Sharon Stone was sexy, but I wouldn't say that she was beautiful as such, you know? So, you know, this dialogue that Bruce has with Alfred, I can kind of relate to that just because I've had conversations like that with, you know, a friend of mine. Or here's another example. You know how Allison Mack is cute? She's not really sexy and she's not really beautiful. She's just cute. Same thing, you know? So I've had conversations like this with, you know, friends of mine, and it's I don't know. It's just, it, it's weird how true this is. So anyway, Alfred realizes that Bruce needs a cold shower. And you know what? Actually come to that. Maybe I do too. But Alfred realizes that Bruce needs a cold shower. So he flips the lever, which I guess is outside of the shower. He flips the lever from hot all the way over to cold. And it looks like Bruce gets blasted with cold water right in his junk. Because it, not just because that's the trajectory of the water, but if you look at his face... He has this face that kind of suggests he just got blasted in the junk with really cold water. So, I don't know. Elsewhere, at the abandoned plant factory in the abandoned plant factory district, two of Poison Ivy's henchmen are basically sitting there shooting the bull with one another. And this is one of those things about the Gotham City underworld, or really the entire criminal underworld, that I've always kind of assumed happens. I mean, they're not like unionized or anything, but they are... There's, a, there's an awareness on their part of how weird their work really is. You know, they know how weird all of this stuff is. And they have a sort of... I don't know. It's like there's a, there are social norms to all of this. You're not necessarily a penguin loyalist or a two-faced loyalist or whoever. You basically just, you, you work for whoever pays you. In a weird kind of way, it's like, it's kind of like working in, I guess, the honest world, the respectable world, where 
you know, if you work at Microsoft, you're not necessarily a Microsoft loyalist. You just work for Microsoft because they pay you. Or if you work for, oh, I don't know, Google or Facebook, fucking whoever, you know, they're just the people that pay you in some cases. You know, for a lot of people, this is just a job, you know. And that's kind of the way that the criminals look at it. You know, they work for the Penguin, they work for the Joker, you know, fucking whoever. And, you know, they relate to one another in, in kind of strange ways. You know, one of them says, it's not that I'm prejudiced against kooks. I mean, I've worked for Penguin and the Joker, two of the biggest crazies in town. So the other guy says, so what's your point? Poison Ivy pays well, and her plan worked, right? And the first guy says... Look, we could have pulled that job ourselves and kept everything. I guess it's because she's a woman. That's what I don't like. Don't feel right taking orders from a babe. And then Poison Ivy comes in. She interrupts. Not even one like me. And she's all, you know, hot and everything. And she basically talks shit to these guys a little bit. And, you know, they try to be company men here, you know. They try telling her what she think, what they think she wants to hear. But it's not. And she says, well, that's just men for you. There must be a reason males are also stupid. And then she just kind of storms out. And it's it just kind of makes you think, you know, is this something that in the DC universe criminal underworld, you know, criminals are, they understand they're expected to do. You know, they're supposed to be kind of, kind of, sort of Sancho Panza in a sense where they indulge their bosses, I don't know, fantasies or delusions or insanity or, or just whatever. This is just, it, it's kind of neat. I like this, is the point. So, this kind of reinforces their, these henchmen's idea to rebel against uh, Poison Ivy, which is ultimately what they end up doing, and she kills them for it. But while she's sort of stewing on all of this stuff, you know, how worthless men are, how worthless jewelry is to her on a personal level. She thinks about all of the men in her life that have let her down or in some way or another hurt her, one of which is Dr. Woodrow. And again, you don't get laborious detail about Poison Ivy's history here, but you get enough of it that you have a flavor of what it is that happened to Poison Ivy. And I should add here, you know, I can't believe I haven't mentioned this sooner, but I should add that, guys, you need to understand, this comic book came out in the summer of 1995, right? In other words, this comic book came out two years before Batman and Robin did. And yet, Poison Ivy looks an awful lot like she did in the movie Batman and Robin. You know, there's this perception out there that Batman and Robin took little or nothing of its inspirations from comics. And I find that to not really be true pretty much at all. I mean, if no place else, if there was nowhere else where Batman and Robin got some of its inspiration for the look and somewhat the characterization of Poison Ivy, guys, Poison Ivy, as she's written in this comic could have been taken out could have been taken directly out of Batman and Robin as a movie except for the fact that this comic came out 2 years before Batman and Robin did you know so 
Keep in mind, though, guys, I'm the guy in the room that enjoys all four of those original movies, including Batman Forever, including Batman and Robin. I like all of them just about equally. I think they're really enjoyable movies. So maybe I'm a little bit prejudiced here, but that doesn't make me wrong. So just keep that in mind. Anyway, like I say, Poison Ivy's henchmen come in. They try uh, stealing her jewelry from her. They One of them even shoots a, a gun at her. And shortly thereafter, she kills these henchmen and pretty much you kind of get another moment where she makes clear her view of mankind. She says, well, at least they make good uh, compost. And that's basically that. So moving on to page 17, Bruce is once again kind of inhibited by the fact that he doesn't have a full scale crime lab available to him in the Batcave. You know, so there are a lot of things he can do in the Batcave. There are a lot of things that he cannot do in the Batcave. And again, this doesn't necessarily completely ruin his efficacy as a crime fighter and vigilante. It simply makes his work, in some cases, harder to do, in other cases, slower. It, But it's it, this isn't a block to him doing his job. It basically is an obstacle that he has to work around, you know? And I kind of like the, again, I, I enjoy Batman and this vintage of his career where he doesn't necessarily have the option of putting shit into a computer and then getting a magic answer from the magic machine. That plays for me. I enjoy that. So, you know, all, of, in fact, all of the dialogue really in, in, in this whole comic it's just really well done stuff, you know? <clears throat> All of that's on page 17. On page 18, though, the dialogue is, as Bruce and Alfred make their way upstairs, Bruce says, I've a hunch she, meaning Poison Ivy, I've a hunch she'll strike tonight. Criminals are never content with only one job. It's the power they seek. <clears throat> Not just the financial gain. And Alfred replies, and increasingly sure, the chance to match wits with the Batman. However, you already have a date. Councilman Danzig's charity dinner, which you've promised to attend with the actress Bebe Danielle, whom, actually what it says on the page is who I've already put off. But I think this, if we go by the rules of grammar, I think this should say whom I've already put off thrice, and who, to judge by her telephone manner, is getting extremely suspicious. So Bruce reluctantly agrees to all of this, but says, I'll be leaving early. And Alfred says, surprise me, sir. And this is just really well-written dialogue. You know, I mean, there are instances in the Chris Nolan Batman movies, or at least Batman Begins and The Dark Knight, where, as Michael Bailey would say, Alfred was kind of an enabler for Bruce doing when you when you think about it something that's really dangerous really psychotic borderline suicidal and Alfred pretty much rolled with it you know and you get the idea that Alfred in comics at least doesn't really do that in terms of being supportive he just doesn't want Bruce to get killed and so he tolerates this in one sense but he will never approve of what Bruce does with his free time, you know? So 
there's <clears throat> there's a weird kind of push and pull that existed between Batman and Alfred in this juncture of Batman's publishing history that I honestly I don't really remember happening a whole lot before Frank Miller's influence and it was it, it seems like starting with Frank Miller and then going forward Alfred would be a not entirely supportive accomplice, you know, put it that way. So anyway, I just, I, I really dig that dynamic between Bruce and Alfred. It, it just seems persuasive to me, you know, that on one level, Alfred is not going to roll over on the closest thing he'll ever have to a son, but he doesn't want Bruce, the closest thing that he's ever going to have to a son to think that Alfred approves of him risking his life in this way and breaking the law in this way. So, I don't know. That works for me. On page 19, we get an establishing shot of the of the Hotel Gotham. And guys, I got to tell you, you know, sometimes in comics these buildings are fairly nondescript and they're easy to forget, but guys, this is vintage 1940s art deco architecture that's being used on this building here, and I just fucking love it. This is a great looking building. You know, it's got, you know, those, those ridges and, and those, I don't know, a little bit of an edifice to all of this where it kind of protrudes out a bit. And then it just kind of ridges in and in and in a little bit at a time, which is, you know, pretty much standard art deco. This is just a great looking building, you know, and I've always been of the opinion that I kind of prefer Gothic architecture and that sort of stripped classic, uh, classic um, Mediterranean style that the fascists use in uh, in the 20th century. I kind of like that type of architectural style for Gotham City. I mean, I like, don't get me wrong, I like the Art Deco look for, for Gotham City. <clears throat> I just think that gothic and stripped classicism actually just kind of work better, you know? That's just my opinion. But even so, just because I prefer a different architectural style for Gotham City doesn't mean that I am incapable <clears throat> of appreciating, you know, first fucking quality draftsmanship <clears throat> when I see it. And that is exactly what we see with uh, the Hotel Gotham on page 19. Now, excuse me while I take a sip off of my water here because my throat is getting a little bit dry. Actually, you know what? <clears throat> I've been running my mouth so much, I'm going to take a couple of drags off of my e-cig here. Anyway, to continue the story, uh, Bruce and Bebe Danielle uh, roll up to the charity dinner at uh, the Gotham Hotel, and there they meet not only Councilman Danzig, but they also meet his uh, date for the evening, I suppose, and she's introduced as Miss Pamela Isley, and Bruce says... I'm not, this is French, I think. I'm not completely sure I'm going to pronounce this right, but 
Uh, Bruce says, enchante. Enchante. Uh, something like that. Basically, as we would say in Texas, enchanted. Is that a West Coast accent I detect? What brings you to the flesh pots of Gotham, especially in the company of our reprobate councilman? And Ivy's answer to that is opportunity. I'm a plant biologist. Thought I might find a lucrative research position here. I'm filling in time working for an escort agency. And you get the idea? Let's just assume that Pamela Isley does in fact work for a work for an escort agency. This must be one of those more respectable ones that I'm always hearing about. But I got to tell you guys, you know, just the idea of escort agencies. I mean, it's like on the one hand, I know on paper what they say they do. But I've never really been able to shake the suspicion stereotype, really, that most people have about escort agencies, which specifically is they're basically kind of a badly camouflaged prostitution, you know? And I'm not sure if that's a fair assessment, necessarily. But that is, nevertheless, the stereotype that many people have. So, you know, ages and ages ago, you know, uh, when I was, I was working at a place, right? And part of my job was uh, tech support. Basically, if somebody's website was broken... I would either fix it or I would help them fix it, you know, if if such a thing was possible, you know, if that was, well, whatever. There were instances where we kind of had to tell people, fuck off, but, you know, by and large, if I could fix it, it was my job to fix it or else help them fix it, you know? And one guy that called up was actually from New York and he ran an, an escort service and he was a little too excited about the fact that he that he ran an escort service, you know? He was a little too into it, you know? Now, guys, I can't speak for anybody else, but you will never... You know, like, some people will tell you never to say never. I'm saying never. You will never see me operating an escort agency except as a last fucking resort. If it means the difference between being homeless and not... Well, even then, it's 50-50 if I'd even open an escort service, right? But guys, rest assured, a life of fucking crime didn't work out for me. And that's why I went into the escort service business. That's how fucking desperate I'd have to be. You know, it's just, it's one of those... Again, I'm not sure if this is a completely accurate stereotype, but... Nevertheless, guys, the stereotype that most people have about these escort services is, like I say, they're basically camouflaged prostitution, you know? And, you know, people have that sense about it for a reason. You know, there's got to have, there's got to be some kind of basis in fact to all of that. So anyway, notwithstanding, this is another kind of Joel Schumachery type of moment here on pages 19 and 20. Where, again, this disguise that Pamela Isley's wearing could have been taken straight out of Batman and Robin. You know, I mean, Joel Schumacher got fucking crucified. Crucified for, well, 
Batman and Robin, for sure, and to a lesser degree, Batman Forever, but definitely Batman and Robin, you know? And, guys, there were comic book inspirations that he took for his movies that are so clear and so unambiguous that the only logical conclusion you can possibly reach is he truly was inspired by comics. He took his inspiration from comics. I mean, here you have basically Poison Ivy crashing a party, a charitable event, and robbing everybody. Which is more or less what she did in the movie. And then here you also have Poison Ivy. She's, you know, she's showing up in disguise, and she did that in the fucking movie. And she looked basically more or less like what we're seeing right here on pages 19 and 20, right? And, you know, it's just, it's a neat little reminder that Schumacher didn't go up his own ass as much as people seem to believe he did when he was making those those movies, you know? It was... I guess what I'm saying is he takes way too much shit from people over this stuff, you know? Anyway. So, moving on from there, uh, Bruce secretly pours out his champagne, and the caption basically says, Bruce Wayne never touches alcohol. Sometimes he hates the charade he, he's chosen to play, yet play it he must, for it is Wayne Industries and the Wayne Fortune that fund his other favored role. Without Bruce Wayne, there would be no Batman. And perhaps without the Batman, there would be no Bruce Wayne. And I kind of like the idea of Bruce Wayne and Batman kind of having... You could kind of argue that they're sort of alter egos from one another. They're, they're definitely separate identities, <clears throat> maybe even separate forms of consciousness. Both of those are truly who this person is, but both of them, there's a weird codependence there. Batman cannot exist independently of Bruce Wayne. Bruce Wayne cannot exist independently of Batman. You know, Batman is the driven, obsessive loner, the Avenger of the night, the guy who goes around beating the shit out of criminals and stuff. And that's who this person truly is. And equally who this person truly is, this guy is not, he's not really faking it whenever he pretends to be the, the sort of hapless playboy, you know? That's not completely an act. There's truth to that, you know, in terms of who this guy really is. You know, on some level, that is a true depiction of, of who he is. Batman, the Dark Avenger of the Night, and Bruce, the hapless playboy, are both who this person truly is. Neither can exist without the other. And I kind of like that idea. You know, now, to be fair, it only just occurred to me as I was reading this comic, you know, to kind of phrase it in those terms. So, you know, I don't have a, you know, an, all that extensive a view of this. But I must say, that does, that does play for me. I like it, you know. So, anyway... Beginning on page 22 and then going on from there, all hell breaks loose as everybody at the party, they've been infected with a mild 
dose of that mushroom poison that killed that that person earlier at this uh, in the story it basically is enough to have mushrooms and whatnot growing out of people's skin but it's not enough to kill them so basically it's enough to send everybody into a fucking panic because if can you imagine how panicked you'd be to see mushroom growing out of your skin that's fucked up but anyway it's it's enough to send everybody into a panic but it's nowhere near enough to kill them so as everybody is realizing what's going on poison ivy wanders outside knocks uh, gordon out with some of her uh with some of her poison goes back inside takes off her disguise and there is poison ivy and everybody except bruce wayne is freaking out because everybody except bruce wayne has been poisoned so bruce gets cornered by some of poison ivy's henchmen and bruce cannot win this fight he cannot afford to be seen winning this fight so he basically tries to do this sort of buster keaton type of thing where he takes everybody out with these sort of this sort of uh i don't know kind of physical comedy pratfalls where you know he's falling over backwards which it gives him just the right angle to give one of these guys an elbow to the face and so he tries to correct himself and get his balance back so he falls forward and some other guy gets gets a uh, jujitsu strike right across the jaw and you know he's doing his best to win the fight without looking like there was even a fight going on and somebody comes up behind him and smacks him upside the head with their gun on page 24 and that's pretty much the end of it you know for the moment at least that's pretty much the end of the fight and i kind of like the idea of you know bruce fighting without really looking like he's fighting that he would try to do that and you know it's hard it's not hard i should say it isn't hard to envision a time that you know what he may actually be good at doing that he may be actually able to win the fight that way at some point so just not yet so anyway from there poison ivy outlines her terms you guys you're not so poisoned that you'll die but those mushrooms aren't going to go anywhere unless i give you the antidote and i'm not giving you the antidote unless you pay up so everybody starts handing over wallets and cash and for some reason credit cards jewelry and all that stuff and bebe danielle basically has it out with poison ivy basically saying fuck off this is my locket you're not taking it so ivy smacks uh, bebe across the face and then it's like ivy rubs her boobs against bebe's boobs and it's like what the fuck am i seeing here it's like are you two fighting or is this about to well turn into something else so anyway i guess before poison ivy can give bebe a poison kiss bebe throws ivy across the room using some judo and one of ivy's henchmen opens fire on her right as bruce tackles the guy and it's not enough to save bebe but at least she's not gonna die from her gunshot wound so at least there's that so on page 29 ivy says you know she says a real gentleman aren't you defending your girl like that 
Who said chivalry was dead? Such nobility must be rewarded, so I won't kill you right away. My body manufactures its own toxins, Mr. Wing. My blood is a seething mass of poisons. I've learned how to control them, and I have one for every purpose you could possibly imagine. And a very special one for you, darling. At the bottom of page 29, that's where she says all that. Now, at the bottom of page 29, I'm at a real loss to identify this person, but it looks like Poison Ivy was actually drawn to resemble somebody. You know, page 29, last panel, she's basically staring at the camera, so to speak, and she's sucking on her finger. And there's something about her face on this page. It's like she's, it reminds me of somebody and damned if I could say who, but it reminds me of somebody. She looks, I think she's supposed to look like somebody and damned if I could tell you who. So I don't know. Your guess is as good as anybody's, but if you have any idea who Poison Ivy is supposed to look like here, dude, send me an email. TrentusMagnus at gmail.com. TrentusMagnus at gmail.com. That's T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S at gmail.com. Let me know. Because this looks familiar, but I can't really place this. So, I don't know. Anyway, so Bruce gets poisoned, and he's got, basically at this point, an hour to live. So, what the fuck, you know? So, Batman swings into action. He manages to track... Ivy back to the abandoned plant factory in the abandoned plant factory district. Uh, takes out her guards out, uh, outside the place. And guys, keep in mind, I mean, this guy is fucking poisoned, you know? And so it's really all he can do to stay conscious. Uh, he can barely fight, but he does ultimately win the fight. And it kind of says something about just how badass Batman really is that he's able to do this. Now, you get onto page 37, and... This is one of those moments where you can kind of tell that whoever drew this story has never been in a fight in his life. Because on, this is page 37, panel 3, Batman punches a guy in the face, and that pretty much puts him down. He punches the guy in the face in a way that if you did, the, if you punched somebody in the face this way in real life, well, don't be surprised if you break every finger in your hand. Because if you do it this way, man, you're you're not punching somebody with your knuckles. You're punching somebody with your fingers, and that's not the same thing, you know. And if you were to really try doing this, you could break your fingers trying to do this. Basically, Batman punches this guy in the face, and his knuckles are facing up. And if you were to, uh, if you find yourself in a situation like this, and you have to punch somebody in the face this way. It's okay to punch him in the face, and it's okay to punch him in the face this way, but you would want to turn your fist over so that your knuckles are facing down instead of up. Because if you punch, like I say, if you punch somebody this way in real life with your, at this angle with your knuckles facing up, you would break every fucking finger you have in your hand. You know, except maybe your thumb. Maybe that one would not be broken, but the other four, definitely broken. And then what are you going to do? You know? So let that be a lesson to you, kiddies. You gotta know when to turn your knuckles over. So, anyway. From there, Batman has it out with Poison Ivy. He gets uh, trapped by that poison cactus-looking thing. And 
Ivy unknowingly administers the the antidote to Batman by kissing him a second time because that's the real antidote. A second kiss of the second poison, that's enough to counteract the poison. She doesn't know that Batman's already been poisoned once and she's not actually poisoning him again. She's actually, she's actually administering the antidote to him. And I kind of like that. That's, that's kind of neat. That works for me. So it does kind of raise the question of how in Ivy's mind, Bruce Wayne didn't die from the poison, but I don't know. Maybe that's kind of nitpicking a little bit. I, I, I really don't know the answer to that. But Batman basically closes out his little confrontation with Ivy by saying, I am completely immune to your charms. That's on page 45. Then on page 46, which is where the story ends, Ivy says, nobody rejects me. One day you'll worship the very ground I walk on. Won't he, little friend? And she's talking to her little plant here. Won't he, little friend? Won't he just adore me and pamper me and shower me with everything I want? Of course he will. He's only a man, isn't he? When Poison Ivy gets you, the itch lasts forever. And that is the end of the story. Ivy's locked up in her cell in Arkham, and that's that's the that's it. You know, the end has ended happily. And this is, you know, this isn't the character-driven introspective masterpiece that Batman Annual number 19 was. This is just a fun superhero adventure story. You know, this is Alan Grant just having fun telling, you know, Batman stories. And like I say, guys, it's scary how similar Poison Ivy is in this in this issue um, to her to the way that she's presented in Batman and Robin, you know, so just maybe after you read this issue, you should watch Batman and Robin again with a little bit of an eye on how Poison Ivy is portrayed in that movie, you know, it's something to be aware of, I suppose. Anyway, so that's basically it for this issue, I think. So not really sure I mean, I've got an idea of what the remainder of this series is going to be. I just haven't really decided what next week's episode is going to be yet. So, I don't think I want to give you a, a preview of coming attractions. So, like I say, I know what this miniseries is. I know what, it's, what it will consist of. I just haven't completely made up my mind about the ordering of it just yet. So, bear that in mind. But that, I think, is pretty much it for me this week. So... Bye, everybody. I will see you next week.